Thank you very much, uh, Cody, for leading those songs tonight. It's uh, unusual when you have a, a preacher who is a great preacher and a great song leader. As a matter of fact, I don't even think I like Cody anymore, but uh, <laughs> you did, did a great job. And I know you're richly blessed in this church to have uh, Cody and his family working with you, and uh, what a great blessing this church is to so many people. I just have to tell you before we begin our study tonight, and by the way, I hope you, if you have a Bible, you'll turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to spend a lot of our time in this uh, particular chapter tonight. What a joy it has been to be with you today. My life has been richly blessed. I feel uh, refreshed and renewed, and it's been good to see some old friends, some people who are very dear to me, and to be able to make some new friends and to enjoy this time with you all. I want to commend your graduates I want to commend you three men who will be graduating tonight for the work that you've done, and the students will be moving up to the second year. I had a great lunch today with uh, Steve and Val and some of their family and some other folks who are part of this church, and it's been a pleasure to be with them. I appreciate so much, Brother Steve, for inviting me to come and be here with you for this day. My only regret is I didn't have longer to spend here, but uh, like many of you have busy schedules, I'm going to have to leave pretty quick after tonight. And head back to uh, Dallas to perform a wedding that the rehearsal is at 9 o'clock in the morning and the wedding is at 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. And I only have one question. Who gets married on Monday? Uh, that, don't they know that's a preacher's day off? Well, they didn't ask me. They just planned it and I'll be there. But I'm sorry I can't be with you longer. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for the cause of Jesus and for what you mean. You're a very friendly group of people, very warm and made to feel very welcome. It would be difficult, probably impossible, to know exactly the year that Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus. There are some guesses, uh, some uh, range somewhere around anywhere from like 34, 35 A.D. up to 39, some even say 40 A.D. And so it wasn't long after the death and resurrection of Jesus that Paul had been spending time trying to destroy the church, destroy the work that Christ had been doing and his apostles were doing. But then he had this encounter on the road to Damascus. He spent three years in Arabia, of course, uh, after that, preparing himself, much like um, some of you guys spend a couple of years preparing. Your, I'm not saying this is like Arabia by any stretch of the imagination, but you're preparing yourself for the ministry, for the work that God wants you to do, just as Paul uh, did. Uh, Paul had concluded his first missionary journey, he concluded the second missionary journey, concluded the third missionary journey, and now he is in prison. Uh, probably, uh, best guess, somewhere around 61, 62 A.D. So, this is not early in Paul's uh, Christian walk, it's not early in his ministry, but it is uh, more toward the end than it is the beginning. And so Paul has experienced a lot during those uh, 10, 12 years or 20 years of, of working for the Lord. He has experienced a whole lot. We talked about some of that this morning from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and 12, uh, some of his experiences, some of the times that he had been beaten and he had been stoned and he had been left for dead and he had been in the shipwrecks and all of the struggles that Paul had been through uh, throughout his life. And he's been on three missionary journeys and now he has probably served time in prison in Rome. And he writes the letter to the Philippians. And I find it interesting in Paul's letter, if you look at chapter 3, here is a man who by now is a seasoned veteran. 
uh, as a gospel preacher. This is not somebody who just graduated from the Southwest School of Preaching. It's not somebody who is young in his faith. This is a man who had experienced a lot of life, who had gone through a lot of heartaches, a man who had worked for God feverishly, who had given his life completely to God, and he writes these words, verse 10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. My belief is that the Apostle Paul's greatest desire in his life was to know Jesus Christ. And here is a man who, from, apparently from what he's going to say here, had not yet fully come to grips with everything that that meant. But he said, my goal in life is to not only to know Christ, but to be like him. And if there's one thing I could say to graduates from the school of preaching and to students tonight, and really to all Christians, the primary goal of our life ought to be to want to be like Jesus, to want to know him and to want to be like him. And the only way we can be like him is to learn something about his life. But continue reading and notice what Paul says. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold by Christ Jesus. So Paul says, here's my goal in life. I want to become like Christ. And if I could encourage you to, to have one goal in life, to understand that your purpose in life is to glorify God, but if you have a goal to become more and more and more like Jesus. You see, Jesus came to this earth to die upon the cross. That's why he came. But he also came to show us how to live. Peter said that he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. John writes in the book of Revelation, follow the Lamb of God wherever he goes. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He came to show us how we are to live. And we are, to use Paul's words in Galatians 4, 19, we are to be conformed to his image. We're to become like him. And so Paul said, my goal in life, even after all of the years of serving Christ, and working for him, and teaching people, and training people, and retraining people, still my goal in life is to become more like Jesus. I wish that would be the goal of every child of God. And there are three statements that Paul makes in this text, in the rest of chapter 3, that I want to spend just a few minutes tonight zeroing in on, because these are really keys to help us know how we can become more like Jesus. And Paul indicates that these are the experiences in his own life. And so number one, if you're taking notes, it's very simple. Number one, if you want to become more like Jesus, you have to be willing to leave the past behind. You have to leave the past behind. Look at verse 13. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. So here is the aging apostle Paul and probably this is the, the last book that he wrote other than, the, uh, other than what we sometimes call the pastorals, other than Titus and First and Second Timothy. So he writes this book, and he's aging now. He's been through uh, the crucible, working for God, and he says, I haven't reached the goal yet, but here's what I'm going to do, forgetting the things that lie behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. So if I want to be more like Jesus, Paul said, I've got to leave the past behind me. Now we understand that 
in a theological kind of sense. We understand that in, in our head. We know that the Bible teaches us that we should not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. We know that Colossians 3 says in verses 1 and 2 that we are not to set our affections on things of the earth, but we are to set our affections on things above. We know what the scriptures teach. We know that we've got to be willing to let the past go. I love the imagery of the Old Testament when God talks about what he does with our sins. The Bible says in the Old Testament that God casts our sins behind his back. The clear imagery there is that God throws them behind his back and he never looks at them again. Isn't that wonderful? That's what God does with our sins. One passage says that, that God cast our sins into the depths of the sea or the ocean. You can drop your watch, you know, in a, in a swimming pool. You can probably get down there and find it. A number of years ago, I was doing some mission work down in the country of Belize. And they have the second largest coral reef in the world in Belize. And, and um, I was on a plane, and there were a number of people who were going down there to dive. And that's what a lot of uh, divers do. They go to Belize because of the coral reef there. And I was talking to a man, and I said, what if you dropped something that was dear to you? down in the bottom of that ocean out there. He said, you'll never find it. He cast our sins into the depths of the sea. One passage says that he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. You ever wonder why he said that? I mean, north and south? My understanding is we can measure the north and the south. We have a north pole and a south pole, and you can measure the, uh, the parameters of that but not the east from the west. There's no end to it. He separates our sins so far that there's no way that he can find them. That's what God does with our sins. And when God forgives us, he forgets about them because he's thrown them behind his back, because he's cast them into the depths of the sea, because he separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. But Because we're humans, we always struggle with that. We struggle with trying to give ourselves completely to Christ. Even when we have repented and confessed wrong, we sometimes struggle with holding on to those things back there in our past. But Paul said, if you want to know Jesus, you've got to let go of the past. I can't tell you how many Christians I have spoken with in the last 40 plus years who have talked to me about the fact that they just can't let the guilt go the guilt of their sins. My thought is, and I don't always say this, but if, if, if God can let it go, and if we trust him, why can't we let it go? I heard about a young man who fell in love with this girl, and he told her he wanted to marry her. So he was talking to her about getting married, and he said, now I want you to know I'll, I'm not rich, and I'll never be rich, like our friend Jeremy Taylor, but I, I love you, and I want you to be my wife. He said, I can't buy you a big house like Jeremy Taylor can, but I love you and I want you to be my wife. He said, I can't buy you big automobiles like Jeremy Taylor could, but I love you and I want you to be my wife. And she said, honey, I love you too, but could you tell me just a little bit more about Jeremy Taylor? <laughs> I think there are a lot of Christians like that. Lord, I love you and I want you to be my God, but there's something about Jeremy Taylor back here that I want to hold on to a little bit longer. And Paul says, if you want to become more like Christ, you must let go of the past. 
Number two, Paul says, if you want to be more like Jesus, you must lean upon one another. We have to rely upon one another. We have to lean upon one another. We need each other's help. We need each other in our lives. So Paul goes on to say, if you look at verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or complete, have this attitude, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. And now listen to these words. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is in their shame, and they've set their mind on earthly things. In a world where there are many people who could be described in the very way that Paul writes in verses 18 and 19, those people who are Christians and who want to be closer to Jesus and more like Jesus desperately need other Christians in their lives. We need each other. I don't know how many times exactly that phrase, it depends on the translation that you're using, one another occurs. We're told that we're to love one another. We're told that we're to encourage one another, that we're to edify one another, that we're to help one another, that we're to teach one another, that we are to admonish one another. And if we're walking through life and we're trying to become more like Jesus, we need to look to the right kind of examples. And I know in a church family like this, there are many godly people who have committed their lives and lived a life of service to God. And all who are younger ought to be paying attention to that. And I don't care how young you are, there's somebody who's looking at your life. There's somebody who wants to be like you. There's somebody who watches the decisions that you make and the choices that you make and where you spend your time and how you worship God. You know, some people, they come to worship, and, and I know we can all have a bad day, but some people act like they're just really not very happy to be present. And if I were a child and I were watching people who didn't act like they were glad to be in the family of God, I wonder why, what's so special about that? And Paul says you ought to set your sight on looking at people who have followed this pattern, verse 17, according to the pattern that you have in us. Sometimes we get the idea that we can kind of be Lone Ranger Christians, that we don't need each other. But the Bible is very clear that we need one another. And then the third thing that Paul says in this text is that if we want to be more like Christ and we want to know Him, we have to have a great longing for heaven. We must want to be in heaven more than anything else. Paul would say in another place that I'm torn between two. I, there's a part of me that wants to stay here, and I know that there's work to do. But he said, I have a greater desire to go and be with the Lord because it's far better. I have three grandchildren, and I would love to stay here and watch them grow up. And as long as I'm here on this earth, I'm going to give and expend as much energy as I can serving God and, and, and watching those grandchildren and helping them on their path. But if I'm a Christian, I've got to have a greater desire for heaven than anything else. When Paul said, do not set your affections on things of this earth, he was very clear. 
He would say to the Corinthians, we have to understand that, that this world is not always going to be here. And he said, we, we, look, we don't look at the things that we see, but we should look at the things that we don't see. He talked about the fact that, that this body is decaying. This temple in which we dwell is, is getting older. Have you noticed that as you get a little bit older? I have places on my body that hurt that I didn't even know they were there before. I have a friend who says that he wakes up and he feels worse than he did when he went to bed. He calls them sleep injuries. <laughs> the body is decaying and wearing out. But the spirit is being renewed on a daily basis as we grow in our faith. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word so that you may grow by it. There comes a time that we ought to get off of the milk of the word and move on to the meat of the word so we can teach other people. There ought to be a renewal in our lives on a daily basis. And it's all because of this desire to go to heaven. So notice Paul's words beginning in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, the word citizenship there is the Greek word from which we get our English word politics. Well, I know it's the only time that particular word occurs in exactly that form in the entire New Testament. We get our politics. There are too many Christians who are so engaged in political discussions that they don't spend very much time in spiritual discussions. And I wish that every child of God, no matter how young you are, or how old you are, I wish that every one of us we get away from the idea that we've got to make political statements in social media. Too many people are hurting the body of Christ. They're hurting the kingdom of God. And they're hurting our ability to reach out to people so that they can know Jesus. And Paul is very clear here. He could not be more clear. Paul is saying in the language, our politics, our government, some of the old translations will say, instead of citizenship, they will say, our conversation. Some translations say, our commonwealth is in heaven. This is not our eternal home. This is not our place forever. Our government is in heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John went into the throne room of heaven, and he sees a throne. It arrests his attention. And God is sitting on that throne. And John writes, in essence, to those early Christians to say to them, when everything around you and your world seems to be crumbling, when the political landscape is at its worst, you need to remember that you serve a God who sits on a throne in heaven, and his government never changes. It is always the same. Paul goes on to say, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he longs for heaven. He wants to be there. And he talks about what will happen. He says he will transform the body of our humble estate. He will transform. That word transform means to change. It's a, the word that we get our English words like transformers and, and uh, transformation. It's like you change one source of energy into some kind of power. He will transform. My son, when he was little, had these... Um, toys that were plastic called transformers and you could play around with them and you could turn a machine into uh, some scary type of creature transformers 
He will transform us. He will change us. This body is decaying. It's growing old. And I don't know everything about the kind of body that we're going to be given based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but there are some things we can know. It will not be a physical body like the one we have now. And aren't you glad about that? It'll be a spiritual body. It will not be a body that you can sow in destruction, but it will be a body that is raised spiritually. So Paul says he will transform this body of our humble state. By the way, Paul uses that phrase there, our humble state. More Christians, when we think about becoming more like Christ and wanting to know him and being like him, being conformed to his death, as he said in verse 10, need to understand that this life is not all about us. That it's not all about me. And preachers, you young men who are going to graduate and who are going to go into your second year, I challenge you and encourage you to make sure that you never forget that the work that you are doing is about you. It is not about you. It is about Jesus Christ. The work that we are doing. And so Paul calls this body our humble estate. I don't know why, but there seems to be something born in us that causes us to, to not have very much humility. But James says that God rewards humility and that God gives more grace to those who are humble. My granddaughter was in the second grade a year or two ago, and her teacher came and asked her, she said, uh, Evie, would you sing the national anthem for us at one of the high school basketball games? And she said that she would. So my wife and I, Lolly, went out and bought her a new dress to wear and for our granddaughter, and she stood out there on the basketball court during the beginning of the high school basketball game in the second grade and sang the national anthem. She didn't miss a note. We're still trying to figure out where she got her singing ability. Her mother asked her after it was over, Evie, are you okay? She looked a little down. She said, well, I'm kind of mad. She said, what's wrong, Evie? Did somebody say something they shouldn't? And she said, no, I was mad. I'm mad because I was hoping it would be on national television. <laughs> There's something, you know, that that idea of humility isn't always ingrained in us from the beginning. But Paul said, I cannot be a servant of Christ and come to know him without understanding the body of our humble estate. So we'll transform this body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glorious image. Now notice that word conform. That word means to, to make like something else. If you go back to verse 10, he said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and be conformed to his death, Paul said. I want to be like Christ. That was the goal of his life. The goal was to be like Jesus. And preachers, that ought to be our goal, to be like Jesus. Don't try to be like some other preacher. Try to be like Jesus. Don't try to be like a teacher. Try to be like Jesus. And Paul says, I want to be like him. And then he says at the conclusion of this chapter that he's going to transform this humble body of our lowly estate and conform it into the body of his glorious image. He says, he will make you like him. You'll be just like Christ. 
say, well, Jeff, can he do that? Well, read the rest of the verse. By the exertion, your Bible might say by the power or by the working of his mighty power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Can he make us like him? You better believe he can. The same power that spoke the earth into existence, the same power that, that created all things on the earth, the same power that created man from the dust of the ground, the same power that put that man to sleep and, and pulled a, a, a rib out of his side. And I have a friend who says, you know, that was the prime rib, by the way. Pulled the rib out of his side and fashioned a woman. The same power that parted the Red Seas and allowed the children of Israel to walk through on dry ground. The same power that took care of Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The same power that took care of Elijah when he was facing the prophets of Baal, the same power that took care of all of those saints of old, the same power that according to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, allowed Jesus Christ to be raised from the dead. By that power, he can transform our bodies of lowly estate. He can conform it to his glorious image. Now, don't miss this. I'm going to quit, but please don't miss this. The goal of our life ought to be to be just like Jesus. That ought to be the, the goal. If we spend our lives, and we may be just like Paul, and we may say after 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I haven't gotten there yet. I've not attained it. I've not arrived, but I'm going to forget the things that are behind. I'm going to reach forward. I'm going to surround myself with the people of God who, who will help me in my spiritual journey. I'm not there yet, but that's going to be the goal for the rest of my life. Someday, when we face him, the prize is that we will be made to be just like Christ. The goal and the prize the same thing. And if you spend your life seeking to become more like Jesus, he's going to reward you by making you just like him. Can you imagine? Can you fathom what that will be like? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Are you ready? There's a great day coming great day coming by and by. If you're not ready, you have an opportunity right now to give your life to Jesus. If you believe that he is who he claims to be and that he can do what he claims he can do and if you give him your life in repentance and if you confess the sweet name of Jesus before those who are present and if you are immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, he will add you to his kingdom. He will give you his Holy Spirit and he'll write your name in the Lamb's book of life. And then you live your life trying to become like him, and he will reward you by making you like him. You can become his, a child of God tonight. And if your life isn't what it should be as a child of God, Paul spent his life fighting, and we have to do the same. 
And no doubt there were times that Paul fell and he would say of himself that he believes he was the chiefest of all sinners. So we will all fall. It's not a question of will we fall, it's a question of will we get back up. And so maybe somebody tonight feels like you're on the mat and you need to get back up. I know this wonderful group of people would love to pray for you. And I know that they would help you in every way possible. If you need to respond, we hope you'll do so right now while we stand and while we sing.